This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. Uh, Welcome back to Caught in the Act. There are certain cases, murders, misdeeds, missing persons, which become more than criminal, more than court. They become cultural. They are rare by their very nature because they invariably contain elements that are almost too mysterious or too macabre to be fact. And within days of first being reported, these types of cases need five words or less to be recognised. WA has had its share. Claremont, Rainey, the Burnies. Australia has had many more. Lindy Chamberlain, Malat, Snowtime and William Tyrrell. Those two words conjure a single image, a smiling little boy in a Spider-Man suit, cheeky, innocent and missing. Now missing for just over nine years. What started as the uncomfortable disappearance of a three-year-old from a rural New South Wales property has become an amateur detective's dream and a real detective's nightmare. Not a trace of William since he was kidnapped three years ago. 4,000 pieces of information have been sifted. Today, we will step through the serpentine search for William Tyrrell, the disturbing developments, the shocking police tactics and the ongoing legal process. And we'll also discuss the ramifications of when a legal process turns into soap opera and what that can mean for the guilty and innocent alike. Joining me to do that is a lawyer who knows all there is to know about the delicate balance between a crime fight and the limelight. Barrister John Hammond. John, thanks for joining us, even on one leg. First, give us a brief lowdown uh, on your legal career. Well, Tim, I've been hitting it now for 38 years, which seems just like an incredible number. I used to look at lawyers at my age when I first started and I thought, why are you still doing it? And boy, you look so old. You're so old. You're so ancient and you look so unfit as well. Um, But no, look, I've loved every minute of it along the way. Um, Started off at Kent Street High School, went to UWA, which was the only law school then with 110 students that generally all graduated and we all knew each other very well and the law firms would write to us and ask us for work, (laughs) ask us to work at their firms, how things have changed. It's now four law schools with thousands of students every year. And have you seen the law change over those 38 years? Um, Well, look, it's changed a lot because um, most lawyers specialise in one area and one area alone, whether it be family law, trademarks law or or criminal law. It's very, very specialised. In my day, you're expected to, uh, well, to adopt the old Docker slogan, be anywhere, anytime, <laughs> be in any court, any tribunal. Back in the day, I was going down to the Racing Penalties Appeals Tribunal and then possibly off to the family court. Mm. That's unheard of now. Yeah. And let the cobblers do the cobbling was uh, one of Ross Lane's famous says. Where do, you, uh, where do you do your best cobbling? Well, I've got one area in particular that I love, and that's uh, criminal law. Um, I just think when someone presents before you and you're convinced as to their innocence, it just gives you that added impetus to get the right result. And lawyers invest a lot, obviously, their time, their their professional dedication and emotion. Um, Do you still get nervous when you're up there advocating for someone that you truly believe should get off? Look, I've always got nervous before every hearing, no matter how small or big it is. Mm. 
because uh, um, so much is invested in it. I mean, I've had some clients say to me, I hope you're going to work hard on my case. <laughs> well, look, I say to them, um, I'm going to be doing it for me as much as you because I don't want to look stupid. And um, the law is a daunting, daunting area of um, work to practice in because it's so all-encompassing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so much knowledge that you have to gain along the way. And you still take the losses personally? Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the morning of September 12, 2014, at a rural property in Kendall on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, William Tyrrell and his sister were playing hide-and-seek. The house belonged to his foster grandmother. His foster mother had driven the children there that morning, and while they played, the adults went inside to make a cup of tea. Then it went quiet, too quiet, and William was gone. By three minutes to 11 that morning, police had been called. Police emergency, this is Simone. Yeah, hi, my son is missing, he's three and a half. Okay. Um, sorry? What's your address? Benaroon Drive, yep. Kendall. Okay, Benaroon Drive in Kendall? Yes. All right, I'm just going to bring that up on my map, it won't be a moment. Thank you. He's wearing a Spider-Man outfit. Yep. What kind um, of hair has he got? He's got um, dark, sandy-coloured hair. It's short, and he's got really big, uh, brownie-green-coloured eyes. By six minutes past 11, police were there. And within hours, an enormous search had been launched for the little boy wearing red and blue. The dense terrain of the Kendall State Forest envelops Benaroon Drive, with the nearby cemetery one of the only breaks in the trees. So the notion of a little boy wandering off, getting lost and needing help was entirely believable. But despite the hundreds of volunteers, SES, Rural Fire Service, motorcycles, helicopters, police divers, detection dogs and the establishment of a police strike force, after five days, then nine days, there was no sign. Which is when the theory started. John... Over your career, you must have seen so many publicised cases where speculation begins to overtake substance. Is that part of open justice? Or can that type of rhetoric, you know, get in the way, significantly harm the justice process? The speculation, Tim, without question, harms the justice process. I've actually come to the view that in a lot of these cases, which are extremely high profile, there almost needs to be a disclaimer at the bottom of every media article which says, innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. Because people jump on a bandwagon and assume guilt. And there can be no greater example than, of this than Learman and Higgins. Mm -hmm. uh, Learman alleged to have raped Brittany Higgins in a senator's office. Now, on my radio segment that I do uh, every week, people were ringing me up and saying Learman was guilty before the trial. Because if Brittany Higgins said it happened, then it did happen. There was no con concept of innocent until proven guilty. And so much has happened. Everyone involved with that case, due to the speculation in my opinion, has come a cropper. Mm. The juror who I believe was under immense pressure, went and did his own research and the trial was aborted mm -hmm. because of that. The victims of Crime Commissioner Heidi Yates accompanying Brittany to the court, immense criticism. Shame Drumgold, the prosecutor, he's lost his job. Mm -hmm. I believe it was all due to the hype that surrounded that case. Mm. 
and I can talk about others, but Brittany uh, Higgins and Bruce Learman, that's the archetypal example of the hype being very, very dangerous. And you can understand in, a, in the case of William Tyrrell that police and media wanted to, wanted to help, wanted to get information out there that might hopefully find this little boy. But it, it seemed to me, and, and you might agree or disagree, that, that, that people immediately then came up with their own theories. X must have done it. Y must have done it. I mean, it, as you say, it, it happens in other cases, and obviously it happened in this one. Uh, most definitely people want a result. They want an outcome. They want an ending to the story. Mm. And as you say, how much, how much information do you think the police should put out in, in these circumstances? I think the police should be incredibly circumspect about mm. releasing information. Um, almost nothing should be told to the public until charges are laid. Mm. And the fact of charges being laid, of course, can be publicised by the police, but it should go no further than that. Mm. Police officers or senior police should not be giving long media conferences at any stage. Mm. Not even in missing persons cases? Only to help find that missing person. Mm. Yeah, and, and as not, you say... But, Tim, not speculate about who may have done it. Yeah, and maybe even the police put a disclaimer out there. We haven't, we've got no persons of interest, or, we, or the, the only person of interest at the moment is the one that's missing, in this case, a little boy. That's right. Mm. So, muddying things was William's family history, colloquially referred to at the time as complicated, which meant legally his circumstances could not. Be fully reported. And it also meant that the familiar family appeals commonly issued in such cases did not appear. That vacuum created more theories and suspicion, while the tiny town of Kendall had to come to terms with suddenly being of international interest. It changed that town, according to those who lived there, and the longer William was missing, so the shadows of suspicion darkened. By the end of 2014, Detective Gary Jublin, who had spent the previous 12 months in Western Australia on a family hiatus, was thrust to the head of Task Force Rossen. He was familiar with high-profile and high-stakes cases, having been finding some of the country's worst killers for years. But this case was like no other and would affect him like never before. John high-profile cases bring their own types of pressures to police, to families and, and to lawyers involved. Give us some of your recollections of what that pressure can feel like and the impacts that it, you've seen it have on other investigations. Well, we have seen in Western Australia that police are put in an, under enormous pressure to get a result and get it very quickly. Mm. So from the Premier down to the Commissioner... Uh, we're all wanting to appease the public, public's thirst for an answer. So what we have seen in Western Australia, for example, and the classic of all time in Western Australia is detect Senior Detective Sergeant Lee saying Lloyd Rainey is the one and only or the prime suspect. Mm. That was because I believe, again, the pressure placed on the police to get a result, a result that was... Um, a long time coming. Mm. So there, ha there is enormous pressure placed on, on police to get the right answers. We've also seen through the Police Royal Commission in the early 2000s, Tim, that police were found to have verbal witnesses. That means telling a witness to confess under duress. Um, there was evidence of that 
uh, occurring in the late 1990s and the 2000s. People were just signing up to saying they're guilty under the uh, under police duress. Mm. And when children are involved or young people are involved, I mean, do you think the stakes are automatically raised because the public pressure, you know, desire to, to get a result one way or the other just just is inevitable? Most definitely. When there's a child involved, we all want to get involved. Our heart breaks. It peaks. It peaks our emotional senses. We don't want a child to suffer, and that adds to the pressure enormously. And obviously we, we saw that in Western Australia in, in full glorious technicolour when young Cleo went missing, and uh, everyone was desperate to find her, but also people were also desperate to put their own theories out there on social media, which were incredibly uh, damaging, I'm sure, to uh, to the, the people most close to that investigation at the time. And we've got to keep reminding people, Tim, that let's not hung, hang, draw and quarter people before there's a verdict. Well, speaking of that, in early 2015, the Jubilin-led investigation began to focus on one man, Bill Spedding. Spedding was a washing machine repairman who had been on a call-out to Benaroon Drive three days before William had gone missing. He then attended the local police station a few days after the disappearance. He told them then, that morning, had been spent watching his grandchild pick up an award at a school assembly. But now, months later, he was a prime suspect. Spedding was arrested in full view of the waiting cameras. Diggers arrived. A septic tank was drained. Search warrants were executed. And his grandchildren were suddenly off limits. Months later, Spedding was charged with historical sex allegations dating back to 1987, not linked to William Tyrrell. They had been investigated once and dismissed by authorities. But now, here they were, back before a court and in front of a public, rabidly ready to put two and two together. There was just one problem. The police knew. They knew those charges would never stick. And when they eventually got to court, they duly slid away. He is a 70-year-old grandfather, but for Bill Spedding, the most crushing moment of his life was when he was accused of being a pedophile. No sum of money will restore the life I enjoyed before this terrible nightmare. The allegations then became that police had only brought those charges to put pressure on Mr Spedding over the Tyrrell case, something Detective Jubilin denied, but two courts would later say was exactly what happened. John, as we know, pressure in all walks of life makes people do funny things, police included. But have, have you ever come across a situation where criminal charges are brought in order to break a suspect down for another crime? Well, look, Tim, on that one, I can give some excellent examples of where that has happened. And we've seen one a lot of people believe on an international level and you need to go no further than Julian Assange, who spent 10 years facing allegations of rape, sexual molestation, three inquiries, numerous charges brought by the Swedish police. And after 10 years, every inquiry and every charge was dropped. Yeah. That was collateral pressure. 
Now, the other example in our hometown, again, is Lloyd Rainey. And let me quote to you David Edwardson uh, QC, who appeared for Lloyd Rainey at the trial, uh, when he said to the judge, the police have every motive to have one target, Lloyd Rainey. They had to get a result. They could not afford the embarrassment of not getting a result. Public pressure, the talk... It all went down one path, and it was disastrous, mm. absolutely disastrous. Mm. It led to improper conduct by the police, Tim, and uh, findings of improper conduct. Yeah. And in, in the in the Rainey case, a bit like the Spanning case, police um, made it known that something might be happening, and Lloyd was basically arrested in the shadow of the Supreme Court building. I remember seeing that video. Uh, a more public spot in Perth you couldn't find. On a, on a, on a busy four-way junction, everyone knows who Lloyd is, and then suddenly there he is in the middle of the street being frog-marched into the back of a police car. Well, in my view, Lloyd Rainey being, uh, being uh, handcuffed, detained, searched outside the Supreme Court where he, as a barrister, appeared almost every day, mm was entirely inappropriate, and Justice Martin, who headed the Rainey trial, totally agreed with that. He, he again made another adverse finding about the police. Um, the police have been told now that that is not to happen. Playing devil's advocate, John, can you could you get a sense of, in the Tyrrell case, why they would, why they would stoop to those tactics, charging a man for something that they pretty, they're pretty sure he'll never be convicted of? Well... It quite likely was a case of pressure being brought on spedding uh, to confess to the abduction of Tyrrell. Um, that's what I think it was. Tim, on that point, um, during the Rainey trial, um, a detective said to one of the main witnesses, and this is right on point from where you're coming, mm. to one of the witnesses, Claire O'Brien, if you don't give us what we want in terms of the evidence, we'll have you and your brother charged. And the detective said, Claire, you know how it works. We charge you. You lose your job. Your reputation's destroyed. You can't get a good lawyer because you have no money. And then we drop the charges and you are yesterday's news. Mm. That happened in Western Australia. Mm. That's what a police officer said to a witness. And we know in the Rainey case what the outcome was and, and what Justice Martin found in that case. Do you think judges... Um, and jurists in general would uh, frown upon these type of tactics? Oh, most definitely. And in the old days in Perth, it was probably a lot harder to run a case of police um, behaving badly. Mm. It's not hard now. Mm. Uh, the barriers have been broken in relation to that, particularly since the Police Royal Commission in the early 2000s. Mm. So, yes, it's frowned upon. And, I mean, what 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 is that... What does that type of experience do to a man? I mean, Spedding, on that clip we just heard, um, said it ruined his life. Um, I know personally that uh, Lloyd has never, ever been the same. Lloyd Rainey's never been the same and never will be the same after the experience he went through. I mean, you, you, you would have seen it in that case and others. Oh, look, I've seen it personally with my clients. And in fact, doesn't matter how minor the charge is, the stress of having to confront a magistrate or a judge and jury over something that you say you haven't done, um, it rips families apart. Um, families never speak to each other. Wives leave the husbands. Um, there's, there's incredible chaos all around when the charges are brought. 
you can't underestimate uh, the destruction it creates. Mm. And as a officer of the court, I mean, does it make you cynical, distrustful, uh, more determined to um, fight the good fight? I think you need to have a healthy amount of cynicism, no matter who you're dealing with. One of the faults that I had when I started as a lawyer is when a client came to see me, I absolutely believed everything they told me. So um, I had to steer away from that pretty quickly because it did land me in hot water a couple of times. Mm. So you also have to be distrustful at times of your own client and put them through the test when they're in the meeting room with you. So... The other investigative trails to try and find William were also long and winding. It pains detectives to still be investigating the little boy's disappearance three years to the day since he was snatched while playing in his grandmother's backyard. In 2016, a reward of $1 million was uniquely dangled, not for a conviction, but merely for information that would lead to the recovery of William Tyrrell. There is a $1 million reward for information that leads police to William. That's one million reasons to make the call. That clip was from Crime Stoppers. And there were two mystery vehicles, a white station wagon and a grey sedan, both older models reported by William's foster mother, supposedly seen on the street on the morning of the three-year-old's vanishing. Those reports were kept quiet for a year, then released with the caveat that police were not suggesting the cars were directly linked. There was a purported paedophile ring linked to a group calling themselves Grandparents as Parents Again, which had two sex offenders as members. One of those men lived in Kendall at the time, the other 20 minutes away. Both denied involvement and both were interviewed but never charged. And there was Paul Savage, a Benaroon Drive resident, the street Sticky Beak, and another who came under the strictest scrutiny by Jubilin and his team, who by now had another theory. A Sydney court will today hear a secretly recorded conversation on a sensational theory about William Tyrrell's disappearance. That theory was Mr Savage's late wife had run over William in her driveway in her car and her husband had helped cover it up. To try and prove it, he was dragged in for a multi-hour police interview in 2017. Listening devices were placed in and around his home, and in addition, the veteran detective, Jubilin, also had his phone in his pocket and his apps set to record when he spoke to Mr Savage on various occasions. John, if the allegations levelled by Savage was true, does it sound like methods used by the police were above board to you? Uh, no, it doesn't, because police cannot secretly record um, telephone telephone conversations. Sorry, not telephone conversations. They can't secretly record... Any conversation. Any actually. conversation. Um, it's a breach of the Listening Devices Act, um, and that evidence will be deemed, in most cases, inadmissible. Hmm. So the police have to be very careful about how they gather information. We have a Western Australian piece of legislation called the Criminal Investigation Act, and that sets out how police are to gather information and what they're to do when they arrest people, for example. Hmm. And there is, there are legal means of, of getting uh, recordings, intercepted recordings of alleged persons of interest or accused. Um, does, he, does the end justify the means if you, if you bend those rules a little bit? No, I don't think it does. You should never bend the rules to get evidence 
um, because it will be ruled inadmissible by the court. There will be multiple appeals. The case will always be tainted if you use um, illegal evidence. Mm. They call it in your line of work fruit from the poison tree, don't they? That, uh, <laughs> that, that, it, that if, you, if you get it um, and, it's, uh, and it's got illegally, then obviously that can't be used. But it taints everything else you've also done in that investigation. The investigators are, are looked at a little bit askance if, if they've done one thing wrong. That's definitely the case, Tim. I remember when I first started in the law, a very prominent barrister, um, and I'm sure he'll be happy for me to mention his name, Eric Heenan, who then became a uh, Justice of the Supreme Court, mm. said to me, John, we only need to get one lie in this particular case that he was running for me. Mm. We got that lie and we won the case. Mm. Um, because the court, the jury, they, lo they just totally do not accept... Uh, every other piece, almost every other piece of evidence is rejected. That's probably be, be, being a little bit um, over the top, what I've just said, but it does taint the whole proceedings. And uh, on the other, on the flip side, I imagine you'd have clients fairly regularly claiming, oh, the police are just trying to fit me up. And I mean, what, what do you do there to try and get to the bottom of, you know, whether the evidence against the client is kosher or, or you know, whether there, there might have been some dark arts going on in the background? Well, one of the key pieces of information that you look at is the video record of interview, if there has been one. Has that been done under any form of duress or inducement? Or was the person kept there too long? Did they properly understand English? There's a whole lot of issues that you look at, save for a police video record of interview. Um, circumstances leading to their apprehension. Was the arrest conducted lawfully? Um, there's numerous paths you can go down to make sure that the evidence has been collated lawfully. And uh, old school, duress would, would bring to mind rolled up telephone books and that type of thing. I mean, what, but what, what, what would count as, or what could count as duress in, 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 in the 21st century, uh, you know, in a, in a legal proceeding or in, a, in an interview, say? Well, if um, there was an implication that if you don't give us the answers you, we want, that something else may happen to you, we may, well, for example, charge you for something else. Um, if an appropriate warning hasn't been given at the beginning of the interview mm. that what you are about to say will be used in evidence. Um, Juresh could be keeping someone in an interview room um, for way too long, say eight, nine hours, mm -hmm. or even better when you know they're affected by a substance mm. yeah. or if they're affected by a road injury. Mm -hmm. um, again, as an officer of the court, what can you do in that situation to try and make sure... Um, police methods are, are fair and above board, sort of uh, on the night uh, if you get a call and then yep. down the track. Um, on the night, if you get a call from someone that says to you, um, I believe I will be arrested or I have been arrested, um, the first thing we always say, Tim, uh, standard modus operandi is just give your name and address, date of birth and allow the police to take DNA. Do not engage in a video record of interview other than that. So that's our, the right to remain silent is just so fundamental to our system. Yeah. Well, Gary Jubilin, the detective involved in those uh, recordings, was eventually prosecuted for them. 
Gary Jublin, is quitting the force after being pulled off the case. But now his bosses are doing their best to see the veteran cop thrown in jail. He was convicted, fined $10,000, but before any of that, he'd been removed from the task force, still looking for William, and had resigned from the police force. He has since written two books, done a live stage show, talking of his experiences in the force, including the Tyrrell investigation, which he still holds strong views about. Bill Spedding, the man that was improperly charged with those historical sex offences, was eventually awarded $1.8 million in damages after successfully suing for malicious prosecution. The New South Wales Court of Appeal called his case the worst of its kind in their state's history. The high-handed, self-serving, grandstanding undermining of the criminal justice system by the relevant police officers has no relevant comparator, that court ruled. One can only hope that its standing as the worst case is never repeated and is never superseded by conduct that is even worse. And William, of course, remains missing. Although, New South Wales police now have yet another theory. Now to the new developments in the search for William Tyrrell this morning. A car that once belonged to his foster grandmother has been seized in Sydney and taken to a secure facility for forensic examination. Police worked through the night searching his foster grandmother's property in Kendall where the little boy was last seen alive. Detectives used a chemical called luminol to test for any blood. The investigation is now focused on one person of interest, his foster mother. So this theory has been, again, aired in public and at an inquest into the little boy's apparent death. As we just heard, it involves William's foster mother, who still can't be identified by court order. The police now postulate that William may have fallen from a second-storey balcony at that Kendall property and that his foster mother then may have hidden his body rather than face possible charges. Behind me is a new search scene. It is very, very familiar to a lot of Australians. It is 48 Benaroon Drive. This is the address where William Tyrrell disappeared on September 12, 2014. You've got a host of uh, police here. They're searching a garden bed, which is immediately beneath a balcony, investigating the theory that William Tyrrell may well have fallen to his death from the balcony into the garden bed. That allegation was put directly to her by authorities during hearings at the New South Wales Crime Commission. At the same hearings, she also denied hitting another foster child with a wooden spoon, which led to criminal charges of lying to the commission. The allegations against William Tyrrell's foster mother centre around a female child in her care. Police allege she kicked an 11-year-old to the thigh, slapped her with a wooden spoon and made several violent threats during a series of incidents in 2021. On the charges of lying to the commission, the foster mother was found not guilty. But she did later admit to assaulting that other child, a 10-year-old girl, including kicking her in the thigh. Those assaults were actually caught on tape, recorded via surveillance devices placed by police investigating William's disappearance. She has denied other charges stemming from those recordings, and she still vehemently denies having anything to do with the vanishing of the little boy in the Spider-Man suit. It is now up to the New South Wales DPP and the police 
whether to charge her with any offences connected with William's disappearance. That decision is set to be made by January next year. John, do you think with all that has gone that we'll ever really know what happened to this little boy? It's a hard call, Tim. Um, on one hand, I'm optimistic. It took Lindy Chamberlain um, some 10 to 12 years to ultimately get justice after numerous inquests and court hearings. So at the end of the day, what I believe was the fair result was obtained. I'll ignore all the hardship that went with that along the way. Mm. In terms of the Claremont serial killer, uh, we eventually got there. Long, painful, slow process. Will we get there with William Tyrrell? I think that answer remains to be seen. I'm a little bit cynical that, about whether we do, because based on what we know so far, there's not enough for the police to press charges. And it's interesting, those two historical cases that you just mentioned, Lindy Chamberlain and the Claremont, there were clear evidence after the fact that police had focused too much on one person. Yes. In the Chamberlain case, obviously, Lindy and not the dingo. And in the Claremont case, Lance Williams and not Bradley Edwards. Those echoes are definitely in the Tyrrell case. Would you oh, agree? Yeah, most definitely. And this uh, problem that the police have in terms of focusing on one person has been a major um, if I can use the word lacunae or hole mm. in terms of police investigations. I think police are getting better now from what I'm seeing mm. and open to much more in terms of what the possibilities may may be out there. Mm. In terms of those potential charges against William's foster mother, and I, I, I stress the word potential because every step of this case seems to have been made public. The fact that a brief of evidence had gone between the DPP and the police was made public, apparently before that information was known by William's foster mother's legal team. Um, again, do you think there's a danger there that that is now slightly tarred and any charges that come will uh, be tarred by the same brush? Well, firstly, the disclosure of the brief should not have happened. That should remain entirely privileged material uh, between um, the DPP and the police. That's just entirely wrong. Mm. In the Tyrrell case, I don't think it'll do too much damage, but it's certainly not helpful. It shouldn't happen, Tim. Mm. And that was done in the, uh, the context of an inquest that was happening right in the middle, or it seems to me, you know, certainly during a, a, a homicide investigation still going on, which, which again, is, is a mighty strange thing to happen. It is very strange. And um, I don't know, Tim, whether there was an inquiry as to how that was leaked, that brief. Mm. Um, but that is, an, you know, if a lawyer was to do something like that, we would lose our licence to practice if that's been done by a lawyer. Mm. We're just not allowed to do anything like that. And I started at the top postulating what happens to a legal process, a court process that is supposed to be insulated, that, it, that is supposed to be um, disinfected by, by being in the justice system. When it becomes, when it, when it turns from court case to soap opera, um, it, it seems to me from what you've said today that you, you feel, even though you've done a lot of high profile cases yourself, you feel that nothing good can, can come of that really. Uh, particularly in criminal cases, Tim, mm. and particularly where 
we are accusing people of having done something even before charges have been laid. And we also have another very high-profile case in Australia where charges were never laid. Christian Porter, that man was treated woefully, in my opinion. Everything that happened to him was contrary to the system of the rule of law in Australia. That man was destroyed in public with there being no basis to do so. Um, He's a tough cookie now and he's now a barrister himself. Um, So he'll be well alive to all the faults of the criminal justice system. Mm. So he was a classic example. And again, I come back to Learman. Um, Everyone had found him guilty before that went to court. Mm. And there, obviously, we heard a a whole um, array of clips um, from from the news, um, which is an indicator itself of how long and how hard um, this um, case has been reported on. It's a case that everyone knows about. Um, the police now tasked with trying to finish this investigation, I suppose, must be feeling the same pressures that Gary Jubilin and, and his colleagues did all the way along. Oh, look, there'd be enormous pressure. And as you rightly said, when we first started talking, it involves a kid in a you know, Spider-Man suit with big um, eyes and sandy hair, something every mother and father can relate to. So it just makes it very tough for them. But I don't think we should aim to have the perfect society. We're not going to catch every killer, every rapist. We can just do our best. Mm-hmm. John Hammond, thanks so much for um, sparing your time to talk through the William Terrell case and uh, the others that you mentioned today, which I think the, the echoes of them to this and to others to come uh, are obvious and and hopefully authorities uh, learn from some of the mistakes they've made in the past. Let's hope so, Tim. Thank you. So that was Caught in the Act for another week. Thanks so much for joining us. We've had uh, some really good feedback so far. Um, so we're enjoying bringing the show to you and hopefully you're enjoying listening to it. If you want to get involved, you can. Um, there's an email address, caughtintheact at wanews.com.au, where you can uh, email in your, any questions you may have. And, uh, of course, don't get caught short. Get caught in the act instead. See you next time.